Bonjour and bienvenue. This week's ATP podcast comes to you from Paris, where we're gearing up for the second Grand Slam tournament of the year, Roland Garros, and there will be ranking points for this one. More about ranking points later. I'm Chris Bowers, and I'm sitting alongside Tamira Pasek, who has taken a break from her comeback on the WTA Tour, thanks to injury and a bit of COVID, but you're fine at the moment working for television here. I'm fine. Thank you, Chris. It's a pleasure to be alongside you today. <laughs> and we are sitting underneath the stands of the Philippe Chatrier Arena. We were going to be sitting outside in the beautiful late afternoon sunshine, but there's still a lot of children around. It's just wonderful kids' day that they have the day before Roland Garros. And I was just wandering around this afternoon, Tamira, and thinking, these are the ticket buyers of the future. It's an incredibly productive thing to do, as well as the right thing to do totally true and I think seeing this today this magnificent energy out there and the kids back on the grounds and Novak being out there playing with them I think this is something the sport has missed during the last two years so it's really really beautiful to see this happening today certainly is well, in the course of the next half hour or so, we'll be hearing from Dominic Team, Alexander Sverev, Lorenzo Musetti, and the double specialists Juan Sebastian Cabal and Robert Farah. But first, let's talk about the upcoming Roland Garros. And we're going to start talking about a Spaniard, as we often do at the start of Roland Garros. But this year, it is not Rafael Nadal, even though Nadal is here going for a 14th French title. The man of the moment is Carlos Alcaraz. He only turned 19 earlier this month, yet he's already up to sixth in the rankings, having won four titles this year, including Miami, Barcelona and Madrid. Important to note Miami there because it's a hard court title. He's not just a clay quarter. And Alcaraz has won his last 10 matches to take those titles in Barcelona and Madrid. His is the name on everyone's lips, including the biggest names in today's tennis. He's uh, a star already and uh, he's doing amazing things. So, yeah, we're going to have an amazing player for such a long time. Carlos Alcaraz is the 2022 Barcelona Open Bank Sabadell champion. He's young and when, when you are young and when you are very good, the, the, the process is uh, faster than, than, the, than the normal people know, so he's not a normal guy. Uh, like Novak was not a normal guy, like Roger was not a normal guy, and probably me was not a normal guy. He's already there, like uh, one of the big favorites to achieve every single tournament that he's playing. He's uh, not anymore a, a young and up-and-coming player. He's already established top player, uh, and and uh, his uh, rise to the to the top uh, uh, ten of the world was is incredible uh, and super fast. Uh, to show that much maturity, mentally, also game-wise, is very very impressive. There's a lot of superlatives going around for him and his game. Uh, from many different champions, uh, former champions, and I think we all agree that you know he he is the future of, of, of the of the men's tennis, but also present. The way he's playing, you can see that he's a really really dangerous player, and he if he will do everything right, he will achieve so many great things. And in the end, you can see in a short time he achieved unreal things. I can see that he also really really in love with tennis. You can see fire in his eyes. You can see that he is not here because uh, the life he can get from tennis. He is here because he just likes tennis no matter what. And this is, I really respect. I mean, obviously, he's, uh, he's a new Rafa, right? That's what, uh, that's what they say. Yeah, that's what, that's what he is, man. I mean, uh, the guy is, like, unbelievable. Unbelievable. He's so good. And uh, 
at such a young age. He's got every shot in the book. His fighting spirit, everything. He, uh, yeah, he's he's an awesome, awesome player. And I think even more so, he's uh, he's a really cool guy. You know, obviously I haven't gotten to know him super, super well, but he's always been super humble, saying hi, and uh, always kind of a great, uh, great person to have near near the locker room or in the gym. He has uh, built a rivalry with most of us. And I think that's uh, something that can help him. I don't think it can hurt him in a way. In the beginning, he was the underdog. And now I feel like he's more based. Uh, people know him better, uh, has been more on the tour. I think it's great what he's been able to do already in such an early, you know, such an early age, playing already quite, quite mature tennis. Physically seems on a very, very high level, which is Nice, nice to see. You don't really get the chance to see like a younger, sort of the younger ki kid. He's still a kid. I mean, now I can say a kid. Um, you know, moving that well, hitting the ball that well. But you know, it's just time. Timing is everything. I think just less pressure on him from from everybody around and let him do his thing and see how he's gonna develop. But for now, he seems to be on the right path. He's a top player now. He's a top ten player. Uh, he's one of the best in the world. He's not the future of the sport anymore, he's the right now. He's something that the sport might have never seen before, so he's going to win Grand Slams. He's going to be world number one, in my opinion. He's an incredible fighter on the court, but he is an incredible person as well. well. If you're trying to work out who those voices belong to, they were Rafael Nadal, Novak Djokovic, Andrei Rublev, Denis Shapovalov, Stefanos Tsitsipas, Grigor Dimitrov and Sasha Zverev. Tamira, the quote that jumped out at me from that montage was Rublev's observation that you can see Alcaraz is in love with tennis. You can see the fire in his eyes. You can totally see that. I mean, I've been watching a lot of his matches lately and it's just a, a pure bliss watching him. I mean, he's not a kid anymore, obviously, but just turned 19. His rise to the top of the tennis level has been just outstanding and happened so quickly. But it's just beautiful to see the fire in his eyes, as you just mentioned, and the pleasure he has being on court, the fighting spirit, the, the sliding ability, the movement on court. It's just, yeah, outstanding. So many parallels with 2005 when Nadal had that amazing run and won the French Open after just turning 19. Do you think that... Alcaraz is in fact as good or even a better player than Nadal was then. Well, first of all, how ironic that they're both from Spain. <laughs> um, I do believe that he has the ability um, to do really, really well, especially on clay, but also on hard courts. And looking into, into this year's Roland Garros, I think he has big chances, yes. I mean, when Nadal had that amazing run, there were plenty of people that said, yeah, but this is a grand slam. You know, that's a different beast. And he came up against Federer in the semi-finals and he beat him in four sets. And then he played Mariano Puerta in the final, who was also a first-time Grand Slam finalist. And in a way, it's easy to say, well, yeah, Alcaraz has done well. He's only just turned 19. But maybe he is ready. Who knows? Maybe he is. I mean, to me, he really looks like he has nerves out of steel. And, and the way he has been playing, the way he has been performing in big tournaments the biggest ones on tour in finals was yeah was I'm, I'm even in loss of words so I do believe that anything is possible for him this year it's interesting what Ndal was saying in that uh, collection of voices he was saying you know he's not a normal guy and Federer wasn't normal Djokovic wasn't normal he himself probably wasn't normal 
I mean, how much do we perhaps underestimate the fact that to be a Grand Slam champion, you do need something that makes you, it's a horrible word, abnormal, but how much were you on the tour aware that the people that won the majors did have something a bit abnormal about them? I mean, at this point of level, I think everyone can play. Everyone has an amazing game. Everyone has, you know, great abilities. So you need to be a bit abnormal to belong to the top, to perform week by week. And I think in especially Alcaraz's development the last few months, he has shown that he's made a huge progress in terms of getting to the top. Shapovalov said he's the new Rafa. Now, Alcaraz has himself said in interviews, no, 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 I am not the new Rafa, I am Carlos. To what extent do you think he is being almost unfairly hyped up because it is so similar to Rafa 17 years ago? Well, I think that's a really important point for him, you know, knowing that he's an individual player, obviously coming from the same country as Rafa, having similar results, being at a similar age where he got to the top. Um, ah, it's, it's, it's a tough one to, to answer because I think the entire country is behind them and is comparing them. So he has a great team around them, especially also with his coach, Juan Carlos Ferrero, which I think guides him well. And in terms of the learning process, I think he's ready to separate that. Yes, and Ferrero said it when Alcaraz was 15, I'm going to devote myself to coaching this guy because he's going to be special. So Alcaraz has had people saying, you are destined for the top for many years, and it hasn't phased him yet. It hasn't, no. And I think he truly believes that, you know, he's Carlos, Calitos, as they call him, and, and he's special, and he knows that, and I think he's just out there to do his own thing. The defending champion is Novak Djokovic, missed the Australian Open for reasons outside his control. He um, has gradually got better as the clay court season has gone on. Is being fresh an advantage for him, or do you think he might be a little bit undercooked coming into this uh, tournament? From what I've seen of his matches in Rome, I think he's fully prepped uh, for this year's Roland Garros. I think he's a, he's a big contender in, in going very, very deep into this tournament. And yeah, I think he is fresh. He might be in loss of a couple of matches, you know, by not playing for, for so long at the beginning of the year. But I think he's well experienced enough and, and ready for, for going for another title. The draw has not been kind to him. He might have a run-in of Nadal in the quarters, Alcaraz in the semis, and Medvedev or whoever maybe sits a pass in the bottom half of the draw. The draw seems quite top-heavy. Of course, I say Nadal in the quarters. Who knows how, how fit, how healthy Nadal actually is? Well, to be honest, I felt for him seeing his last match that he played. Um, he was in obvious pain, and it, it was really hard to, to watch that. I mean... I myself had a lot of injuries and obviously you, you feel for an, a fellow player. But yeah, let's see. It will be interesting to, to see his matches, to see in what kind of shape and what kind of physical condition he's in and, and how his injuries are going. He clearly finds something extra when he comes here. How much can you find a bit extra? At what point does the body say, I'm sorry, I don't, know how, I don't care how determined you are, I just can't go on? Well, I think you can trick your mind up to a certain point, and I think having great memories at a certain place creates a certain energy in your body, a certain sensation, and I, I guess that is what you know makes Paris and Roland Garros so special to Rafa. So let's see how well he can keep himself going and and you know overcome those other maybe not so nice sensations.
Well, from one clay court champion with injury worries to another. For many years, Dominic Team seemed the natural successor to Rafael Nadal's dominance of clay. And when he won the US Open in 2020, it seemed the Austrian had broken through. But injuries and a bit of a letdown, certainly in motivational terms, after the high of September 2020, have affected Team. So here he is taking stock of where he is now. Not done yet. Dominic Team, who continues his return, his recovery. I almost couldn't believe myself that I was almost on the top once. Oh, it's brilliant. It's a stunning victory for Dominic Team. Every win is a big, big bonus. I'm just trying to improve every day. It feels super nice to be back. It was, was really tough five, six months, but I think also in a way a good experience. The most I missed about competing is the winning feeling, obviously. He's done it. What a victory for Dominic team. To win a match, to have this, this great feeling. Superb season he's having. The comeback in general was very tough. I ruptured my wrist uh, twice. He sprained his wrist, I think. That's a great show. You wouldn't wish it on anyone, let alone a really good guy like Dominic. It was my first experience with a big injury like that, and it took way longer than I expected. From the moment I started to hit the tennis ball again, this was the toughest period, because uh, obviously before this wrist injury, I almost never had any issues with my body, so I could do whatever I wanted. I was not that confident with my wrist, uh, maybe slightly changed my technique and that's why the hand started to, to hurt. Working that I'm not scared anymore at my forehand was very tough. For the first time I felt scared to hit the shot. Team tried to make the bigger adjustments to make an impact on this match. Unfortunately, he just didn't execute. I felt scared about my wrist and this feeling took very long to go away. There were two or three setbacks with, with the hand injury, with the COVID infection. It was, was really tough uh, five, six months, but I think also in a way a good experience. Every win is a big, big bonus. I chose the, the clay season to come back, uh, the Challenger tournament in Mabea. Everything went fine and then I got uh, COVID as well for, for the first time. This was just a small setback because I guess at one point everybody gets it. Since I'm healed from COVID, it went in a really good direction with finally the first ATP match in, in Belgrade. A hugely encouraging performance from Dominic Team. I don't know if, uh, if when you get 100% fit, I'm going to struggle, but uh, great Thank to see you back. On court, I want to play as many matches as possible, but every win is a big, big bonus. I'm just trying to improve every day. And the first short-term goal is to, to be in a decent shape in, in the French Open. I almost couldn't believe myself that I was almost on the top once at this tough sport. I was reflecting a lot, um, especially when I, when I saw those tournaments on TV. I was appreciating a lot what I have achieved. Dominic Team wins the very first Masters 1000 title. I think I was not like many other players who were on the top from a very young age, like Sasha or Stefanos or now Arcaras. 
It took me a little bit longer. I came in the top 10 only with 22 and a half years or something. So I never believed that I could achieve that when I was 19, 20 to, to be in the top 10, to win Masters titles, to win a Grand Slam title. I was appreciating it a lot. Oh, it's brilliant. I almost couldn't believe myself that I was almost on the top once at this tough sport. Rafael Nadal is defeated. It's a stunning victory for Dominic Team. I was never scared, even though it was a long way. Oh yes, that's a Dominic Team special. Not done yet. You have to work way harder for, for the special moments to come because coming to the ATP tournament was so special and uh, was like you have so much success in winning one set or winning one match. It's like such a huge success and once uh, you are on the top or once you were there, the standards are so high. What a performance. The pride of Austria. I definitely have a, a different perspective on life and, and tennis now. I think the biggest difference uh, from now and, and 10 years ago is, is my experience. Doesn't look like it's going to happen 12 months on. I definitely have a a different perspective on life and, and tennis now. That changed, I guess, in the last five years or something. Before that, it was only tennis. It was focusing on, on, on getting better, practicing, uh, eating and sleeping, and that was it. For me, I want to make life on, on our planet a little bit better with, with the way I have the influence, with the way I have a lot of fans, and I try to, to use that for for doing good things and um, I think it's important if you if you get older and older and more experienced to not only be a tennis player but also to, to try and do good stuff. Play for the ocean, win for the ocean. I'm super happy to, to see all the people. They all gave me a, a great welcome. I, I have the feeling that most of the players, they were really happy to see me. I'm happy for and really looking forward to the next years to come. Tamira, as a fellow Austrian, you know Dominic Team very well. What do you make of where he is now, physically, emotionally, in terms of tennis, in terms of life? Well, I think he, you know, he's grown up and I think... That's not always a good thing for top-level tennis players. <laughs> you say that, yeah, it's true. But I think, you know, it was important for him to have some time off court and, and it was also a learning process. It was his first big injury that he had in his career and it, it came at a crucial moment, being him being on top of the game basically, winning his first ever Grand Slam, which I know personally from him that was his biggest life goal so far. So I guess that also leaves a bit of an empty space after you know having such a huge moment in your life reaching one of your lifetime goals then you know you ask yourself what's next and that's when the injury came in so i think right now he's in a in a really good place his health is improving he's playing a lot of matches i think his mindset is there he's working hard every day to improve he has you know a good stability off court with his girlfriend and and things seem to be in a good place and i'm sure he'll He'll sooner or later come back to his top level. I mean, you say that he wanted to win a Grand Slam tournament. We all assumed that because clay was his best surface, Roland Garros was his goal. But what you're saying really is that 
having won the US Open, he lost slightly the motivation even for Roland Garros, which the year he won the US Open immediately followed the US Open. Yeah, it was almost like he lost a bit of his spark, you know, his passion for the game. There was a bit of, um, yeah, unknown times in terms of where where does my motivation lay, what are my goals that come next. So I think it was a bit of time needed for him to process everything that has happened and he definitely had a lot of time now to process that and I think he's also very much encouraged in terms of doing a lot of stuff off court, playing for the ocean, like really using his ability and and his known person to to be a a good ambassador and I think right now he's found his his new motivation and I'm I'm eager to see where, where the road leads. Where do you think it will lead? It's tough to say. I mean, the game has evolved as well. There are a lot of youngsters coming up and not only coming up, but at the top of the game already. So obviously, you know, things have changed a bit. And and I think for him, it's just a matter of how he's able to combine the game with his physical work and, and just kind of finding a routine and a rhythm again. He is such a hard worker. And yet... You can work harder when you have a single goal. Now that he's got a greater sense of balance in his life, is that likely to take something away from his competitiveness? I'm asking you that as somebody who knows him very well. Um, out of my own perspective and knowing how it is if you've been off court for quite some time because of an injury, it's really difficult to get that kind of rhythm going again in terms of when you're you know on tournaments week by week and and it's tough to leave home especially when you have a great balance and you have everything that you you know need or want at home it's tough to sometimes leave that behind just you know to go work to to go suffer in practices and and but at the end of the day it's always been his passion and I think he'll he'll find the right balance as he always did. He's playing Hugo Dalin here. He hasn't actually won a tour-level match. He's lost four tour-level matches he's played, plus a challenger match. I mean, he's got to have the breakthrough of just winning a match before he can do anything else. I agree. I mean, it's obviously not the best start that he had in terms of his comeback and result-wise, but from you know reading what he says and hearing what he says, I think he's quite happy with the progress and... and as I mentioned before, his, his mindset is right, and I think it's just a matter of believing and, as you just said, winning that first match that can, can turn everything around, I guess. I was just thinking that he's in this steady relationship now with a daughter of a circus um, owner, and I was just wondering, well, we think of Dominic Team as a, as a very sort of almost dour player, someone who does the basics very very well but doesn't have a great deal of sparkler do you think we might see something a little bit more daring from uh, team do you think you might pick up some of the circus spirit when he comes back one of his girlfriends actually a circus performer so that's a good point i mean yeah why not i'm not expecting him to do you know to, to fly on a trapeze across a tennis court but you know what i mean by the fact that he he was always a very sort of straight-laced player uh, in terms of that I honestly think he's going to stick that way <laughs> in terms of his playing, his playing structure. Well, that's Dominic Team. We're not expecting great things of him at this French Open, but let's see what happens uh, over the next few months because uh, you never know, that break might uh, do him good. He might suddenly discover some uh, real passion again um, for working hard and developing his game. Another man who is on the way up for the first time is Lorenzo Musetti. 
Uh, he reached the fourth round here last year and he had a two sets to love lead against the eventual champion Novak Djokovic before running out of steam, losing that in five sets. Musetti talked us through the past 12 months, which he spent under the tutelage of his longtime coach, Simone Tartini, and he began with that almighty scare that ultimately never was. You have got to be kidding me! I was two sets to love with Djokovic on the center core. This extraordinary Italian teenager. It's my first year on tour and it's positive. Now I'm here, uh, break through the top 100 uh, this year and uh, achieved a lot of goals, but uh, not finished yet, just, just started. I knew that for me, for my character, Simone was the, the right person. You know, for me, it's like a second dad. <laughs> I, I would say an ankle. He watched me grow, and for sure, uh, it's part of my family now and uh, part of uh, my team. It's the leader of my team. Uh, we've been through a lot of things, a lot of juniors' careers, a lot of uh, great moments. Is my diary this year. Every day, every tournament, I wrote something about uh, match, about uh, my sensation during match or after the match. What are the numbers? Two, five. Hey, the, two. the match, match every tournament. Okay. Antalya final, five, five match. Seven in Acapulco, semi-final. Musetti magic in Mexico, and he becomes a top 100 player. Okay, so fourth round of Roland Garros. That was my first appearance in a Grand Slam. I was two sets uh, to love with Djokovic on the central court of uh, French Open at 19 years old, and it was the best two sets of the year, because. After that was, was not easy for me. I felt the pressure, I felt everything. He was the number one, he still is. He's really good of coming back. I didn't have any chance to, to win. After losing the third set, because even my, my physical part was uh, really tough. We were really tired, so I decided to retire at the fifth because I was really cramping and stuff like that. From I don't know from, if from the tension, or from the pressure, or for the physical matches that I that I played. After that match, I had some uh, difficult situation even outside the the tennis. After July. Mm. Mmm, no, no good. Bad, very bad. That's not going to get it done. I have some problems with the private life. That's why uh, I had a little bit of up and down, but uh, it's okay. Musetti, as we've mentioned, has uh, struggled in recent times with his, his level. He's been out of sorts, Massetti, there's absolutely no doubt about that. Boom, boom, boom. Hasn't been the most secure shot for him tonight, that forehand. 12 unforced errors and eight of them have come off the forehand. Cinque. 
passo lungo l'incrociato, non devi prendila e poi vai. Devi stare basso, eh? I'm doing this exercise really often and now we are working a lot on the forehand to feel the transfer of the weight. So basically it's, it's this and a little bit of surface. For 2022, I have to respect myself as a man inside the court, even when I'm in a difficult situation, even when I'm tired, even when I'm uh, under pressure, I have to be more mature, older. I have to be older <laughs> in that kind of thing. Of course, there is a lot of pain and suffering during the season, but when you win a trophy or when you win a tournament, you're gonna remember of the sacrifice that you did and the work that you did, all the sprints, all the run that you, that you made and all the exercise. So when you win a trophy, it's because of the, the hard work and I think it's really satisfying. What's the tattoo significance? What is that? It's my personal orbit. Like really personal, mine. Okay. Because my, my uncle is a cardiologist and uh, I took one set of the, the frequency and it was this one and then I put in the middle the, the rocket. Miss, I put the rocket uh, here. I wanted one tattoo, small one, and uh, that's it. That's it. Tennis is in your heartbeat, tennis is in your life. It is, is in everything, so. 2021 was the uh, first experience for me in the, in the professional tour. And uh, I played a lot of first tournaments. I made a lot of first victories in the TP Tour against uh, top 10. Uh, I broke through the top 100. That uh, was my first goal and at the start of the year. Yeah, I, I had a little bit of up and down, especially on the second part of the season. But you know, I'm still really young and I have, uh, I have to learn a lot from, uh, from these moments. And I think 2022, I don't know if it's gonna be my year, but uh, I feel more mature and more, more grown. So I will probably say that uh, it's gonna be better. Tamir, I find it interesting that Mazzetti uses the word maturing a lot. He speaks a lot about the need to respect himself on court more. Interesting phrasing there. I get the sense that the maturing process takes longer with someone like him because there's so much to Mazzetti's game that he needs to learn which weapons to use when, and that simply takes longer. I totally agree, and the maturing process is not the same for each and every player or each and every individual. We've seen players like Rune... Rude, Shapovalov, Aliasim, and for them, you know, it's happened a bit quicker than for Musetti, but I think he's on, on the right path, and we've seen outstanding tennis from him at last year's Roland Garros. But yeah, it, it's just a matter of combining the off court events with your game, with your physical ability, like everything coming together. And that's a process of when you come from juniors, when you're at a very young age, your physical ability changes, your body changes, your mindset changes, you're, you know, you're dealing with things that you have not been dealing with in the past and, and your figure of, of interest. I mean, people 
want to be a part of your life, you're on, on social media, you play in front of so many more people than you did in juniors or on a challenger tour. And I think that's a part of maturing as well. He's got a lot of aspects to his game. In that respect, he's similar to Shapovalov. He's similar, I would say, also to Sebi Korda, who um, also has lots of different elements. And, and learning when to play what takes time. And I suppose we forget that Roger Federer, although he won his first Grand Slam title at 21, the two years leading up to that were full of people saying, wow, this guy's got all the talent, but will he ever be able to put it all together? So it's, it's a common factor that players like that have to deal with. I agree. And when we look back at Federer at a young age, I mean, he was smashing rackets. He wasn't respecting himself on court. And, and it was also a learning process for him. And it took the natural amount of time that, it, that he needed to grow up and, and to mature. And when things came together, he was, well, the goat, I would say. Well, that's just, he's certainly in the discussion these days, that's for sure. And uh, he's entered the tournament in Basel, so hopefully his career isn't finished just yet. We focus a lot on Spaniards. We're going to focus on another one now, because it's 29 years since Sergi Bruguera ambushed the then world number one Jim Courier in a thrilling five-set final here to win the first of his two Roland Garros titles. Now, Bruguera is back here this year as the coach of the third seed, Alexander Zverev. With semi-final runs in Monte Carlo and Rome and a final in Madrid, Zverev comes to Paris in impressive form and he's showing a level of consistency and confidence across this part of the year under Bruguera. So when Richard Connolly met up with Zverev recently, he asked the German if that's what Zverev was looking for out of his coaching relationship with Bruguera. I looked uh, for someone that can guide me again uh, because I was without a coach or without a coach that tells me what to do probably for six seven months uh, end of last year and beginning of this year so I needed somebody that that can can help me in that way with the absence of my dad um, who wasn't with me for for quite a while um, I needed someone who can do that and um, I actually talked to David Ferrer uh, again but he unfortunately doesn't have the time to to do it with me and he's the one who suggested to me search and I tried him in Miami and um, it worked out well and uh, now he's a big part of the team. When you say guide, it kind of sounds like more than tennis. I guess any relationship with a coach is more than tennis, but... No, I mean, no, when I talk about it, I talked only about the court because yeah. uh, I'm somebody that I want to come on the court. And I don't want to be thinking uh, of what to do, what to practice. I want sometimes to be just told, uh, today we're practicing this, today we're doing that. And uh, I think he's a, he's a perfect guy for that. Interesting. Zverev says he wants to be told what to do, at least on a practice court. But Tamira, Zverev hasn't always given the impression that he does want to follow instructions. What might be different about working with Sergio Bruguera? Well, I think it's a, it's a huge factor that, you know, Bruguera was a champion himself. He's been there. He's been on tour, played at the biggest events, won the biggest events. So I think having, some, having a coaching figure like him changes the mindset of a player I mean in terms of respect understanding level I think a player knows what a player wants and maybe that's where he could just let go a bit of the I know what I'm doing to I like to be led in terms of what I do in terms of the practice routine the daily scheduling that's probably one of the only differences I could see in terms of coaching relationships to former coaches. How much difference do you think it makes that Bruguera is twice a champion here? I asked the question in the context of, if you think back a few years, there was a fashion for what they called super coaches. You know, Federer was working with Edberg, Djokovic was working with Becker, um, Chang was working with Nishikori. 
And yet, in many ways, if you look at uh, the role that Marian Vida played with Djokovic, Vida wasn't a top-level player. He never got near winning a Grand Slam, and yet was a very, very astute coach. Is there something about somebody who's won a, a major as opposed to somebody who just works well with somebody? No, I think that there are differences in terms of coaching relationships, and I guess you go through a certain time in your career where you need a certain person and for Novak it was that certain person for a very very long time in his career some people like to hear different voices a lot of times some people prefer a coach that used to play someone that's just a coach and didn't play on the level before so I guess it's just on knowing yourself knowing what your needs are on court and then finding that right person for each individual because I mean it seems odd to think that Zverev didn't work well with Lendl and could work with Bruguera, but maybe Bruguera is more relaxed than someone like Lendl. Exactly, and, and that's where the personality comes into, an, into, into play. I mean, for me, it was always a huge aspect. Do I match well personality-wise with the person I'm working with? Because tennis is a single sport. You spend extremely you spend an extreme amount of time together during the day and it's not a sport like you know for example basketball where you see the coach for practice and then you see him for the match and that's it but you actually have to have a a lot of patience for one another and I I really think that in a lot of terms it's not only a coaching relationship I think it's also a bit of friendship and understanding involved and for that I guess I hope it works out for him because I guess we think of coaches as sort of helping on forehands and backhands, but at this level they don't need help with forehands and backhands. They need good discussion over dinner the night before. You said it. I mean, they know how to play a forehand or a backhand, and, and the, those are the little things that, that matter, the fine-tuning that I always like to call it of, yeah, and maybe also the dinner menu that they like to discuss with their coach. I thought they always had the same dinners every night, these tennis players. <laughs> yeah, there is some superstition involved for sure. <laughs> Okay, let's get on to the uh, the broader Roland Garros. We've got um, we've talked about the, the three big names, which are Djokovic, Nadal, and Alcaraz, all in the top half of the draw. There are a number of other players. Uh, Cameron Norrie has played well over the last few months. Um, Medvedev and Rublev, Ogieliasim, uh, Sinner, Kasper Ruud has proved himself a very very good clay quarter over the last couple of years. If it's not going to be one of the three that all the focus has been on who do you think it will be and in fact who do you think is going to come through from the bottom half of the draw well um, looking at the circumstances of Rafa's health condition the last few months or weeks um, I would go with either Novak or Kalitos in in terms of making it through the to the final in terms of the chop draw difficult Zverev's been in a really good form really really good especially on clay the last few weeks so he has been doing better in slams lately which is a benefit for him but I really would not know who to pick for for the end trophy I mean Zverev lost in the semis to Tsitsipas last year they've played twice on clay this year each one has beaten the other I mean I, I just wonder whether Tsitsipas is running into the right sort of form given that this appears to be his best surface well, I saw a bit of his match today, the, the Kids' Day exhibition, and he looked in good form. So, yeah, that could be one contender for the title for sure. Anyone do you see coming from outside? Do you see either of the two Canadians? Do you see Norrie? Do you see Rude at all? Anybody else who we're not focusing on who might put a good run into at least the semis? 
I think Rude is dangerous, especially on clay. He's been playing well. He's also on hardcore playing well in Miami. And Oje Aliasim, I like his game. Even on clay? Even on clay. I mean, he's had some help from Tony Nadal in the past. And I think it's a good good, good person to receive help from. It's funny you pick... Especially on clay. You pick uh, Rude and Oje Aliasim. They've both had influence from the Nadal family because Rude went to the Nadal Academy uh, in, in the latter part of his teenage years. So, um, yeah, the Nadal influence is still making itself felt. Let's see if my picks are right in the end. <laughs> we ought to just look at the home nation. Um, on an awful lot of the advertising boards around Paris, you've got Gael Monfils, but he's out. He's got a heel problem, and also one wonders whether at 35 his focus is elsewhere, especially as he and Alina Svitolina are expecting their first child in a few months' time. Uh, very happy for him, but um, it leaves the French, actually, with a lot of players, but nobody that you could see making much of a presence in the second week. No, I mean, for him, personally, exciting times. Obviously, unfortunately, the unfortunate that he had to pull out with due to an injury, but... On the other hand, you have Tsonga that is retiring, where it's breaking my heart. I always loved watching him play. And you have Simo that announced his retirement for later during the year. Um, so it's, it's, it's tough to say Luca Pui is coming back from, you know, a long injury. No one that I would see late in the second week, but obviously a lot of French are still in the tournament. And Hugo Gaston was always a surprise the last couple of years with his drop shots <laughs> so that can be an exciting match to watch you mentioned Songa there I mean it's 14 years since he reached his one Grand Slam final as in Australia he's been a semi-finalist here do you think he should have done better or do you think actually he made the most of his game I think he had a game to be able to win a Grand Slam he had a huge serve which was you know one of his best shots, I would say. He had a massive forehand as well and, and you know, good physical ability to be on court for five sets. But at the end of the day, you know, it's a path that no one knows where it leads to and I think he, he had an outstanding career. And people loved watching him. If you want to hear more from Joe Wilfried Songa, check out the ATP podcast channel on Apple Podcasts and Spotify because we have an exclusive one-on-one conversation with Songa that we published earlier this week. Do check that one out. Some first-round matchups that might be of interest. Anything jump out at you, Tamira? I mean, the ones that jump out at me. Hugo Gaston against Alex Diminor. Uh, Holger Rune against Denis Shapovalov. I mean, that's a hell of a first-round match. And um, may not be a sort of uh, a massive match, but one of the Sarundolo brothers from Argentina, the elder one, Francisco, he's playing Dan Evans, which I think will be a beautiful match to watch. Clash of styles. But that Runa Shapovalov, I mean, what a draw. Well, I would have said in the first and the third match, he could go either way. I mean, that's, that's an outstanding battle, or two outstanding battles ahead of us. And Rune Shapovalov, can it get any better? <laughs> I mean, on clay, I would generally go for Rune, but Shapovalov looks like he's playing himself into a bit of form. Personally, I think I would have gone with Shapovalov just because he's played well in Rome and, and, you know, he has matured, the topic that we had earlier. And I think his game has come together. He seems more calm to me on court now, but also Rune, I mean, he's living the life. Why not? It's going to be really interesting to see who will have the upper hand.
it feels a very, very open French Open, a very open Roland Garros, which begins at 11 o'clock Paris time on Sunday. We ought to mention the decision taken late on Friday night that the ATP and WTA tours have decided to award no ranking points at Wimbledon following the decision by the All England Club and the British government to ban any player from Russia or Belarus from entering Great Britain and therefore from playing any of the British grass court tournaments. The ITF have also joined the two tours by withdrawing ranking points from the Wimbledon junior and wheelchair events that it administers. The ATP statement said, I quote, the ability for players of any nationality to enter tournaments based on merit and without discrimination is fundamental to our tour. The decision by Wimbledon to ban Russian and Belarusian players from competing in the UK this summer undermines this principle and the integrity of the ATP ranking system. It's also inconsistent with our rankings agreement. Absenting a change in circumstances, it's with great regret and reluctance that we see no option but to remove ATP ranking points from Wimbledon for 2022. End quote. But the statement also went on to say, quote, We remain hopeful of further discussions with Wimbledon, leading to an acceptable outcome for all concerned. Close quotes. On that basis, this story may evolve over the next days and weeks, so keep an eye on atptour.com for any developments. At the time of recording this podcast, the doubles draw has yet to be made, so be sure to check out the official Roland Garros website and app for that, as well as the women's draws. One pair who enjoyed their stay in Paris last year, having gone all the way to the semi-finals, are the Colombians Juan Sebastián Cabal and Robert Farah. They're looking forward to the 2022 Roland Garros, even if they weren't totally excited about the clay court quiz that the ATP Uncovered team put to them. So we've got a quiz for you and you're going to be competing against each other. Me, always. Simple. The theme is clay and it might be a mix of ATP, WTA, doubles. And if one misses, the other one gets to gets, answer? Gets to have the go. Okay. Who's got the best tennis trivia knowledge? I think he's never beat me, so I have confidence in myself right now. I'm not good at this. <laughs> Which player has won the most clay court matches of all time? So this can- Give it to me, give it to me. Okay. Supposedly it's easy. Okay, go for it. Rafa. No. No, <laughs> you see? Villas. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Which player has the best win percentage on clay? I'm going to give you two options, okay? No. Okay, without an option then? Ah, but wait, wait. No, 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 Rafa. It's, it's not Rafa. Oh, gosh. Remember when I said it could be WTA as well? Oh. oh. Well, then, uh, she has an academy in Florida. Ah, uh, Chris. Chris Ever. Chris Ever. Ah, put for me. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yes. <laughs> All right, I'll give it to you. I'll give it to you. Okay, so staying on the subject of Chris Evert. She holds the record for most consecutive matches won on clay. Wow. How many did she win? Was it 103, 110, or 125? Well, I'll go 10. It's incorrect. Ah. <laughs> <laughs> you have a 50-50, you mean? 103. No. No, oh. 125. Yes, I'm winning. <laughs> Which Grand Slams have been played on clay? French Open. Yeah. Australian Open. No. Kind of an easy option here, sir. Yeah. US Open. Yeah. I'm awesome. killing it. I'm killing it. 
What year did the US Open go from clay to hard court? And I'll give you multiple choice, okay? I, I don't need a choice though. Okay. No, I'm joking, I'm joking. <laughs> 1969, 1973, or 1977? 77. Yes. No, what? Vamos, 3-2. 3-2, let's go. Okay. <laughs> Which doubles team has won the most Masters 1000 titles on clay? The Bryans? It was the Bryans. Sure. If in doubt, the Bryans is always a good, good yeah. doubles Doubles and Bryans, it's a winning combination. What is the only doubles team to win all three Clay Masters 1000s in the same year? Zemo and Nestor? That, yes! Yeah. Vamos! How many titles have you guys won on Clay? Us, okay. You can't count them, you just gotta say a number. 15. You have been very good, not not quite that good. <laughs> it's like, good job, but not that good of a job. Counting already, no, he's no. counting already. No, 12. Yes. Yeah, he counts already. Nah, right? Yeah, no, I'm that yeah. good. Next yeah, question. Right. No, no, let's recount, huh? That's 5 3 fair. Yeah. Yeah, thanks. In 2008, Rafael Nadal won the Monte Carlo doubles title. Who was his partner? Mark Lopez. It was not Mark Lopez. Yeah. Verdasco? It was not Verdasco. Verdasco. No, David Ferrer or Tommy Robredo? With Ferro. Not. No. Tommy. Ah, Verdasco. Rafa, how would you rate him as a doubles player? A 10. I mean, whatever he played, he, he wanted. Which European clay tournament is played at the highest altitude? Yes, that. Yes. Is this the last one? This is the last one. Ooh. Five all. How many ATP tournaments are currently played on clay? Yeah, he's counting already. Can I know? count? I mean, uh, can, uh, can uh, I have uh, five uh, seconds? Uh, uh, keep counting, keep counting. I'm not going to count. I'll give you 20. So close. <sighs> 22. 19. Just going to keep circling the actual answer. Well, I mean, you said so close. <laughs> yeah. I mean, we're not going to say 30 now. Yeah. <laughs> Let's, count. Let's count. Let's count. Sixteen. Eighteen? Seventeen? Twenty-one then. Twenty-one. Twenty Calling it a tie? We call it a tie. For sure, we're not good at this, okay? <laughs> but they entered into it into the right spirit and hopefully their on-court exertions will prove better than their prowess at tennis quizzes. Good luck to Cabal and Farah, and indeed all the other doubles teams taking part. And that record of Chris Everts is seriously impressive. Tamira, where do you think doubles is these days? We've had the Bryans retiring. They've, they've been gone for a couple of years now. Um, but we had that wonderful doubles tournament in Australia with Kokinakis and Kyrgios winning. Is doubles still the poor relation, or do you think it's holding its own? I think it's starting to hold its own. I think it's grown a lot. And especially also in terms of, you know, media advertisement, people watching a lot of doubles. I think that's gotten to another level and I'm really happy to see it because we have so many great players playing doubles, especially also former singles players and, and great doubles team that deserve the same amount of respect as singles players. Do you think we need to encourage more singles players to play or do you think the doubles players have enough charisma in their own right to attract people to doubles without them being the biggest names in tennis? I think obviously they have their own characteristics and their own respect in terms of playing doubles. I mean, they're there for a reason and they, they play amazing tennis. Um, does it help? 
In terms of people coming to watch, yes, we saw that in Australia with Kyrgyz Kokinakis playing, obviously their home event and then winning the title. But that's what you love to see out there, whether it's singles or doubles, it's tennis, it's a great sport, it's great to watch. And I really love to see more and more people coming out to court to, to support doubles. I did a doubles workshop a few months ago when the coach said, if the rally goes more than three or four strokes, you failed because you need to be able to close it out within, you know, if, if you can't get a service winner, make sure that the guy at the net is in quickly to put the ball away. If you take that to its logical conclusion, you're killing the spectacle. I mean, we do like some long rallies in doubles. Do you think that doubles is almost too good for its own good? Well, I mean, you're speaking to a woman that played on the WGA Tour. <laughs> Girls like a lot longer rallies than guys do. Um, especially in doubles, so I think I'm not the ideal person to talk to about that. Yeah, but the the but net player in women's doubles is every bit as true, aggressive true, as I in agree, men's doubles. I agree, that's evolved a lot over the last few years. Um, but yeah, a lot of times it's just serve, return, boom, volley winner. And I get the aspect that, you know, spectators like to see long rallies and for it to be more interesting, for them to be more engaged into the point and... I guess it's pros and cons on both ends. <laughs> Interesting thoughts, yes. And of course, a lot of uh, people who come to tennis tournaments, they play more doubles than singles at their club. Thank you, Tamira Pasek, for your thoughts on that, for your thoughts on the whole of the forthcoming Roland Garros. I'm Chris Bowers, and I'll be back next weekend to look back on the first week of Roland Garros and also to bring you more interviews with coaches and players. You can hear the sound of the children still in the background. It's been a fantastic kids' day at Roland Garros, and they are still hanging around looking for what autographs they can get, being photographed against the uh, scenery that makes up Roland Garros, and they will be the people listening to this podcast, if not in years to come, maybe in a few weeks or months to come. For all the latest scores and news, head to the official Roland Garros website and app or to the ATP platforms. For now, thanks for listening and enjoy the tennis. Enjoy the tennis.